a quick message to let you know that Occupied Plus has launched over on Patreon. If you are looking for some extra value from Occupied, extra podcast episodes, downloadable resources, access to me, supervision, mentorship, and many, 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 many more things that I will be continually trying to add more and more to, then jump over to patreon.com forward slash Occupied Plus and check us out. Tiers starting from $4 US a month. It is bargain basement for extra value that can add to your clinical practice. Now let's check out this episode. I've been meaning to record an episode like this for some time. Uh, and I finally got around to putting it together and bringing this to you. There are quite a few things that OT say on the daily that I see very regularly on social media, in OT-related groups, etc., that I, I, I don't feel like OTs fully understand what they're actually implying when they use certain terms and certain words. So I want to actually have a look at the definition of some of the things that we say and see whether or not it actually matches up with what we are intending it to say. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Alright, so, firstly, I want to lay out there that this is absolutely in no way intended as an attack on anyone or anything like that. This is simply me looking at patterns uh, that I see within promotional material, things that people put out there with regards to the profession, how we work, what we do with people, etc. That has never... Uh, fully sat right with me because I just had this sort of gut feeling that some of it didn't make a lot of sense based on my understanding of the definitions of these words. Uh, I know often the 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 term semantics is often thrown around for eh, potato potato. Uh, why does it matter? But semantics matter semantics is the the use of linguistics the study of language and what words actually mean so it's kind of important uh especially from a profession that is continually complaining that the one word that we use to define our our profession is used or known for a different definition by the general public i don't think we can have our cake and eat it too in this instance so I just wanted to have a look at some of these words. If you've got other ones, uh, let me know and I can do a follow-up and we can explore other words. But these are a few that some of them I've spoken about before, some of them I have never mentioned. Uh, but let's have a roll. Let's have a look and see what we can find. So the first one is one that I've explored uh, many times on the podcast, but I would be amiss if I left it out, and that is function. So actually having a look at definitions of functions, it's looking at a factor related to or dependent on other factors. 
Now, when I explain my uh, aversion to using the term within our profession, uh, I use the example of mathematics, as does this dictionary definition as well, uh, where it explains that this factor dependent on other factors is, for example, the price is a function of supply and demand. Uh, That's a basic mathematical formula that you can use to work that kind of stuff out. But when you input some set of numbers at the end, you're going to get exactly the same uh, format, the exact same function out the other end of it because it's consistent uh, and people are not consistent. People do not conform to if I input the same data into one situation in a person uh, I'm not always going to get exactly the same outcome. So that's my aversion to function. Uh, there are certain professions that use that term quite successfully. Um, for example, uh, if you're looking at sort of manual muscle testing and that sort of stuff, if you put a certain charge through a muscle, you're going to get a certain reaction. There are parts of the body that do um, behave in a functional manner. But the person as a whole, yes, there is some predictability, but not completely to the point where you could say, you know, they work functionally uh, in that instance. And we have other words. We have occupation, as a lot of therapists have an aversion to using the term. Um, I've explained quite a few times how you can explain it uh, that just makes sense to people. Um, but we have terms that we can use that one, better explain what we actually do, uh, but two, also better encapsulate uh, the breadth of service that we actually can provide. The next one that I want to have a look at, and I know that some of these words are going to get some people's backs up, but what I would encourage you to do is if you do have an aversion when I bring up a word or a term, have a think, have a reflect, because why you're reacting to something is also a very important thing to reflect on. So the next one I want to bring up is holistic. Um, for a long time, I've often been of the ilk that we're not holistic. OTs are not holistic. Uh, there are very few professions, if any professions, that actually are holistic. Um, when we look at the definition of the term from a philosophical point of view, Uh, It's the theory that whole entities as fundamental components of reality have an existence other than as the mere sum of their parts. So, you know, you you will have heard that in textbooks that people are more than the sum of their parts, that kind of thing. There is more to a person than just the different systems within the body. You know, we have our limbic system and our gastro and all those sorts of things, and we put all this all together, and that is a person. No, there's a lot more to it. And yes, if you're looking purely at that, you could probably maybe justify uh, OT as holistic. When we look at medicine, like a medical definition, uh, it's looking at the care of the entire patient in all aspects of well being, including physical psychological, and social. And I believe that if you take those last three uh, areas out of context of the whole definition, then yeah, OTs, like we look at those things uh, as a profession. 
as an individual therapist, you should be at least considering those things. But we don't care for the entire patient based on all three of those things at the same time. Ideal world, yeah, it would be amazing if we can. But in reality, as a profession, there are probably enough people working in enough different areas that we could call OT as a profession holistic. As a a health service, I would hope that a really well-designed health service has enough different professions looking at all of the different aspects that make up a person's health and well-being that the health service could be deemed as holistic. Now, I know there's a lot of issues with different health services, so I'm not going to say that health services are, but in the ideal world, you would hope that a well-designed, well-resourced health service could follow fall into that classification. An individual therapist, I think you would really struggle. I know for one, me as a, 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 an OT work who worked in mental health, yeah, psychological, social, all over that. All over that. The physical stuff, I can make recommendations. There are a lot of physical aspects of OT I have absolutely no idea about and I would not look at. I might get someone else to do it. But again, that's because the health service I was working within was holistic, not me as, a, as an occupational therapist. And I believe that the, I guess, morphing of this term is where we're getting slightly stuck with our use of it. So yes, we do look at the person as a whole, but we don't provide care for that person as a whole. We can't. We can't. We just don't have the resources. I don't know if one any one person has even the brain capacity for the amount of knowledge that would be required to do that. But the term in more recent years has almost been hijacked uh, and sort of modified in this term, holistic health. And what holistic health tends to look at is those professions that aren't generally you uh, identified during general health discussions. So you're going to have things like counseling, art therapy, being a youth worker, kinesiologist, hypnotherapist, a lot of uh, Eastern style alternative, and this is air quotes, alternative medicine type professions tend to come under the moniker of holistic health. Now, that's not to say that those individual professions are holistic in and to themselves, but I believe that the term is trying to, I guess, encapsulate a more holistic health view as an umbrella term by bringing in a wider variety of health professions into health discussions. Um, the, the, the thing that OTs get caught up in is there are a lot of OTs that are now looking at providing these sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them alternative health services. Uh, there's a lot of OTs that, especially in the States, that often start off uh, studying kinesiology before they move into OT. There's a lot of OTs that I've seen online that are you know, now providing meditation, mindfulness, yoga. Um, yeah, I'm sh- guarantee you that there is OTs out there that also provide art therapy. Um, 
sure we could find an OT that does hypnotherapy out there somewhere. But OTs trying to expand their skill set into other areas is one, it's them, I guess, trying to expand their scope because they're, for whatever reason, it could be that they're not comfortable or that they're uh, with the, the, the scope of OT itself or that they feel like they're personally able to bring more to their clientele with this extended skill set. Whatever the reason is, it's not important for this discussion. Um, but that holistic health is then, is then being tied in with OT because people are expanding their scope of practice into this quote-unquote holistic health realm. When described like that, I don't feel like there's too much issue in using the term if it's being used correctly. I It's a red flag for me when anyone is describing themselves as a holistic health profession or a holistic anything other than like I'm a whole person, but that's about it. Because um, straight away I'm like, well, there are definitely things that you can't look at and you can't service and that you can't provide care for. Uh, I know a lot of therapists that actually have dual degrees in various, in different health uh, settings. So I know a couple of people that are also OTs and physios. Um, I know at least one person is OT and a nurse. And having these dual uh, roles, provided you know that you're registered in both and all of those sorts of things, would allow you to provide a, definitely a, a broader range of services to the people that you work with. But even then, there's still going to be things that you're not able to do. Um, so uh, holistic health or holi- being holistic, uh, I feel like, yes, it's definitely a term that gets used in health. I do feel like often it gets used incorrectly. Uh, and I do feel it's kind of often used as a marketing tool because it sounds fancy and it sounds new age and it sounds woke and all of that. Um, But I I think having an understanding of how that word actually frames your service, if I was going to a holistic health profession, I would be expecting that person to be able to do everything because that's what the term means. All right, let's move on to, from that, onto one uh, that tends to often go hand in hand from from my observation. Woo-woo. And I won't spend a lot of time on this because I don't think it needs a lot of time. Uh, I see a lot of OTs describing themselves as woo-woo. And one, it, it never made sense because the term itself uh, just doesn't click with me. But also, when you actually look up the definition, the very first word in the definition is derogatory. And then it goes on to explain that it's slang based on or involving irrational superstition. So if someone is woo-woo, then they're basing their ideas, their concepts, their thoughts on irrational superstition. Now, if I was going to any health profession uh, with the knowledge that, or and I found out that they're basing their treatment and their care on irrational superstition, there's a fairly good chance I'd be cancelling that appointment and finding someone better. 
I understand that there's a cultural thing around woo-woo with it, again, being, oh, you know, often used in the context of, oh, you know, I'm just fun and a bit quirky. But when you actually look at what that means, it's pretty much the complete opposite of what the profession is. Um, I don't want an OT or any health profession that is irrational and basing their their treatment options on superstition. So I'll, I'll put that one aside for now because I just feel like it has no place in the profession. And again, my opinion. Another one, a slightly off uh, topic to the, or slightly off off brand to the ones that we've looked at so far, but the the concept of serving. And I know this one's going to be slightly controversial. I know people are going to have different opinions about this, but I have the microphone, so here's my opinion. <laughs> uh, when we're looking at definitions of serving, I know a lot of ATs do talk about, oh, I'm serving my clients or I'm serving this population, etc. And it's never sat well, and I, I never really understood whether it never sat well because I don't like being told what to do, or whether there was a more sort of genuine reason for me not seeing a correlation with OT. Um, so I've sat down and actually put a lot of reflection into this one specifically, uh, and I think I've kind of worked out why I don't like it. Um, so the, when we're looking at definitions, the, the definitions is either acting in service or distributing something. That's kind of the two different trends of the, the various definitions of serving. So we're at acting in service, so we're serving someone, um, or we're distributing something. So we're like, you know, we're, we're serving dinner or something. We're serving a service of some sort. Either way, either one of those two, I think, and this is the big thing that that irks me and sort of my my intuition never really clicked with the term, is either way, neither of those are collaborative. Collaboration is one of the biggest things I see in a contemporary occupational therapy profession, uh, and I feel like that's where the profession is moving more and more, is collaboration with our clients. If I'm serving them, then it's almost like the complete opposite end of the spectrum to me being prescriptive and giving them a service and fixing their issues. It's me almost taking that very passive role and whatever you want, I'll do that. That's fine. We can off, we'll can we get an idea in our heads of what serving just as a, a general term, not in a healthcare setting, sort of means. But it's a very passive, it's a very standoffish, it's a very submissive um, role, generally, in any serving profession. Um, There's not a lot of collaboration, if any, in a serving profession. The other thing of distributing a service, again, that's probably more closer to the prescriptive role where I can serve out information and I can serve out you know, equipment. <laughs> and some people's roles may fit that. That's not what they should be. And they, uh, if, they, if your role does fit into that category, I'd be uh, strongly advocating for you to advocate uh, an upgrade of your, your job description because that's, that's not really what OTs are meant to do. But this collaborative 
or lack of collaboration when we're looking at serving people um, is the reason why I don't feel like it's fully encapsulating in a really good way, hopefully not anyway, what we're doing with people. I think that a lot of the time it gets used because it sounds altruistic. Uh, it sounds like, oh my God, you're such a good person. You're serving these people and these, you know, it almost, it, it very much to me enacts an image of an us and them uh, in my mind. If I'm serving someone, then I am below them. Uh, and, you know, I am I'm at their beck and call and uh, fulfilling their needs whatever they are. In this instance, it'll be some sort of healthcare need, obviously. But um, what we're trying to aim for within this profession is collaboration. We want to be putting the, the, the person that we're working with on the same level as us. Yes, we're bringing a different skill set to that collaborative team, but so are they. And we want to make a good mix of those skill sets and essentially try and build the best teamwork that we can in order for that person to get the best service that we're able to provide. If I'm submissive, if I'm below them, same as if it's the other way around, I'm not able to give them the best service that I potentially can provide to them. Um, that, that power differential which we talk about and anyone who looks at any of the, the bigger uh, practice framework models um, the one I'm thinking of particularly is the Canadian practice framework model because that's what we tend to teach a fair bit of here in Australia. Um, we'll know that negating a power differential is an important part of that, as as is collaboration. Um, but negating that power differential doesn't mean swinging it to the other extreme. That's not negating a power differential. That's just shifting it to the other foot. Um so that's that's where I, I have issues with serving, and I, I'm not 100% sure um, what an alternative, if there is needed to be an alternative. I do feel like it's often being used as a marketing term for therapists. I do feel like they're you know, promoting it for almost like a virtue signaling, like, look, I am serving these people. I am below you. I am at your service. Use me for whatever you need, um, but I am of service to you. Which, in reality, it, it might sound altruistic, but I can guarantee the service that you're actually providing isn't. You're not of service. You, at hopefully, are aiming for that collaborative middle ground. So the next one I wanted to bring up is motivation. And I don't want to bring up because this is this is one that I don't think people are uh like shouldn't be using because we definitely need to look at motivation. I believe that uh some of the concepts and the understanding around motivation is not very well understood by OTs. So the 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 main I guess example that I hear quite often is uh, a person or even themselves sometimes in the description has no motivation, which isn't a thing. Uh, I feel like we have, for whatever reason, probably through this process of learning standardized assessments, got into this mindset that motivation is uh, you know, able to be measured quantitatively. 
when it's not like that. It's not like we have these seven buckets for the different activities we do and we have to put some motivation in each one in order to get them done. It doesn't work like that. So when we're looking at the actual definitions of it, uh, well, this one here is it's looking at the state or condition of being motivated or having a strong reason to accomplish something. And that's the important part. It's the reason to accomplish something. So you're motivated when you have a reason. Now, if someone in... For in the earlier example, when I was saying someone's being described as having no motivation, generally, that's not a very one. That's not a very helpful thing to look at. You're not going to be able to do anything with that particular assessment of the situation. But being motivated means someone has a strong reason to do whatever it is. If someone is lacking in motivation or they're not feeling very motivated then it means that they don't have a very good reason. Now, there's a couple things that you can look at with that. Is One, you're trying to get them to do something that they just don't care about. Like there's literally no reason at all for them to be doing it. I.e., you can probably think of some kind of standardized OT assessment that the person just cannot relate any reason to actually be doing it. That makes it hard to actually get the motivation to do it. The other reason is that uh, you kind of think of this as like a tug of war. That reason, there might be our reason. Again, you can think about these weird and wonderful standardized OT assessments from many moons ago, um, things like pegboards and that sort of stuff. There may be an actual reason, but it might not be strong enough to overcome the reason that they want to do something different. So... I have a choice right now in that I can sit at this desk and I can record this episode or it's a beautiful day outside. I can go down to the beach. Now, my motivation to do both, there is definitely a reason I can do both. Reason to go to the beach is, yeah, I enjoy it. It'll be nice and cool. It'll be lovely weather for the first time in quite some weeks. Uh, It's good for my mental health, blah, blah, blah. Reason number two is I've been putting this, oh, reason, not reason number two, but reason for doing the alternative, which is recording this podcast, is I've been putting this off for a long number of weeks. I really want to, and I'm really curious about your opinions as to some of these words that I've been thinking about for quite some time. At this point in time, my motivation, my reason to do either of those activities, this one, as you can probably tell because you're listening to me, is a stronger reason. To me, it's a more important thing. It's something that I feel at this point in time, uh, there are less barriers to. uh, There is, I'm going to get more accomplishment out of. uh, And I feel like I can do the other one later on. There are other ways around it. So my reasoning behind accomplishing both of those activities It just happens that at this very point in time, this one is stronger than, say, going to the beach. Now, different time, again, I would need to reassess. If I had a scratchy throat, that's going to impact on which of those I feel like my reason or need to accomplish it is going to change because I'm like, well, I've got a scratchy throat, so I could push through, it'll sound like crap, Uh, and I'm not going to be happy with it when I'm done, which is that sense of accomplishment. I'm not going to get as much sense of accomplishment out of it. 
or I can go to the beach where I don't need to worry about my scratchy throat. Do that. Do the the podcast another day. Yes, it's been put off. Yes, that's that's you know adding to that uh, barrier because I'm putting it off again. But if I'm going to do something, I need to me I need that sense of accomplishment. So a lot of those sorts of processes often we do without thinking about them. Like I unless unless I wasn't was actually recording this podcast. I probably wouldn't have thought about those two particular activities and gone, hmm, I wonder what my reason might be for doing them and what the pulls, the barriers, etc. are and which one's stronger, etc. I'm just like, oh, gut feeling, I'm going to do this podcast. Intuition is really powerful when it comes to motivation and it can be, again, something that we may a person may not have explored in depth or reflected in depth about the reason why they do or don't want to do something, but it's just a gut feeling. Often that gut feeling, probably 90% of the time in my experience, that gut feeling, if you actually do then sit down and look at the reasoning, there is reasoning there. It's very rarely wrong. Um, but it's important that intuition, which doesn't often get taken into account when we're looking at motivation, is actually looked at. In doing it that way, and we're looking at reason as opposed to motivation as a quantity, we're going to have much more successful outcomes with the people that we work with because we have a much better understanding of why they're doing things, why they're choosing to or not choosing to engage in certain activities. Why aren't you wanting to do your rehab exercises that the physio gave you? Okay, well, it's because they don't see the reason for it or the reason isn't very clear to them, which means it's not going to be very strong. And they have all this other stuff, work stresses, family stresses, that sort of stuff, which to them, the reason, the the reason, in quotes, as a noun, getting on top of that stuff is a much more important thing because they can see the reason for that. You know, keep the family happy and healthy, keep the household running, etc., etc. So we need to look at it on terms of reason, which for an OT really shouldn't be that difficult because a lot of the times when we're looking at occupation, we should be looking at the reasons for engagement. That reasons for engagement is exactly the same uh, process that we're using to look at the, the reasons behind when we're looking at motivation. So if we're looking at reasons for engagement as opposed to just here's the activity and what's your motivation, we're killing two birds with one stone. So we're going to get an understanding of how motivated they're going to be. It might simply be a, a matter of looking at a broader range of occupations like, for example, the two, the two things that I could potentially have done today or right now this afternoon. Uh, and looking at the reasons I would want to engage in those, and then you can sort of compare and discuss collaboratively uh, about which is stronger and which is going to have the most pull, or at what time. Because obviously, if it's at night time, okay, cool. It's during the day now. Maybe go to the beach now, and at night when there's not much point in being at the beach because a lot of the benefits of the beach disappear at night. <laughs> uh, you can maybe do your podcast. So that's the level that we need to be, that's a basic level that we need to be getting to an understanding of the people that we work when, especially when we start looking at motivation. But motivation isn't quantitative. We don't, you don't measure it. 
not, oh, I've got three quarts of motivation and I need three and a half to get this done. Like, it doesn't work like that. All right. One of the last ones, and a big one, and I put this out to Instagram the other day uh, just to get some other people's opinions. The art and science of occupational therapy. Now, this one I know a lot of people are going to have opinions because a lot of people sent me their opinions on what they felt like it meant. And the interesting thing was, and I haven't shared these uh, responses on Instagram because I felt like it might color other people's opinions. So the interesting thing about it was every single person sent me something completely different. There, was, there wasn't there was even any consistency, really, uh, in the answers about what the art and science of OT actually mean. So let's start with the definitions. Obviously, we know what the definition of science is, I would be hoping. We know what the scientific process is. We know that OT is being backed up by many different sciences, including occupational science and some psychology and other things, uh, some philosophy as well. But there are many sciences that go into constructing our perspective of what occupational therapy is. But we'll say for the sake of argument that we're going to look at that uh, from an occupational science point of view, given that that's the the field that was essentially designed to try and support the profession. So that means we need to have a look at what art is. Now, there's a million different definitions of art, surprisingly. I didn't think there would be. I never actually had considered what the definition of art is. But there is a common theme between them, and it's aesthetics, which is interesting. Because, that's, again, that wouldn't have even been something that I may have considered putting in a definition of art. So, majority of the definitions are either looking at creating something according to an aesthetic principle or improving something's aesthetics, presumably according to the same principles. So, you can, quote, art up something, as in, you know, dress it up, improve it, etc., but it's specifically looking at aesthetics. So when I'm thinking about how that might relate to the art and science of occupational therapy, obviously we know the science is that, that, very, that very structured research background uh, and how we should implement and the types of things that we should implement as a profession. So what exactly is the art? And I did have some people sort of... Um, try and explain to, that in their opinion it was to do with how it was implemented but then that also gets covered under the science uh, if you're going to have a, a a best practice then that best practice needs to include uh, how things are actually implemented as well as what's implemented because that's otherwise it's not a best practice it's just a best resource um, so that was interesting but the I don't feel like there's anything that we do that's particularly sort of specifically to do with aesthetics. But then in reflection, the only thing that I could think of, and I am curious to your thoughts, a lot of the interventions that we do, we try and make them relevant to the individual. 
So a person has a hand injury, we need to try and find how we can help improve that injury, improve that area of that person's life using the things that they do in their day-to-day life, using their occupations. The art aspect that I could... The only way I could find to justify it based on the actual definitions was, is the art aspect of the art and science of occupational therapy looking at how we take a complex scientific concept and, again, for lack of a better term, dress it up so that it seems, one, more appealing uh, and, two, more relevant to the individual that we're hoping will actually engage in that for their, their benefit. That's the only way I could try and sort of make the two concepts fit. And I am curious. I, I wasn't able to find too many sort of definite, specific definitions on the art and science, um, but it was mainly through reflection and discussion that these these thoughts started coming. But I feel like dressing up the aesthetics, so to speak, of uh, the information and the resources that we have discovered through the scientific process could potentially be a way that we could utilize the term within the profession. Now, how have I seen it utilized? Uh, The main way that I have seen it utilized by occupational therapists, which is the reason why it red flagged for me in the first place, was I feel like everyone has a relatively good understanding of what the science of OT looks like. Um, And then people would justify absolutely anything else that came up as, oh, that's the art. Okay. Why? No answer. So I, anytime there's no, I, I think why is probably the question I ask the most. Um, and I've, I'm sorry for, to my students, but I feel like critical thinking is something that the, the, the profession needs. And while we're on the topic, looking at critical thinking definitions, it's disciplined thinking that is clear, rational, open-minded, and informed by evidence. So if we're not able to uh, critically think about what this art is, then does it actually need to be there? Um, the interesting thing is that it has to be informed by evidence anyway. So how that would make it a science. So even the art of occupational therapy is actually science. Oh, this is a deep rabbit hole. But it's something, again, I don't have a definite answer, but I am definitely curious to hear your thoughts around what you feel the actual art and science of occupational therapy is and be able to explain why in a clear, rational, open-minded way. Uh, I am more than than happy to to do a follow-up episode if people do have opinions on any of the words that we've explored here today. Uh, I find it really interesting. And I do, again, I reiterate from the very start, I do feel like semantics are important. The, The linguistics, the words that we use as a profession are important. Uh, And I feel like we need to, as a profession, be a bit more consistent with how we're using these terms. And I know that we are very broad and diverse and all of that that stuff, but I do feel like uh, one of the reasons maybe that people don't 
understand what we're doing is because we're very inconsistent as a profession in using some of these terms. Uh, if we have our heads around them and we understand them better, I mean, we shouldn't be using terms we don't understand anyway, but if, especially, for example, particularly the ones that we've discussed today, if we have our heads around these uh, and we're discussing them consistently across the profession, I feel like, one, it's going to make for a much more consistent professional identity, which is also going to assist us in being able to support and explain what occupational therapy is to the people that we work with. So that's enough of your time that I have stolen from you today. Thank you very much for listening. Please do drop a, a DM, drop a comment, send me an email. If you do have any other words that you feel like OTs might be misusing uh, or misunderstanding, if there are any of the ones that we've explored today that you feel uh, particularly strongly about, please do let us know and let's start this discussion because these discussions are how we make the magic happen. So thank you very much and I will see you in the next one. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.